Frankie, come. Come on. Frankie, come. Good boy. Good boy. Sit. Good boy. Down. Down. Good boy. And stay. Stay. Good boy. How about you? Can you sit down and stay for the next half hour? This is Spotlight on Assistance Dogs. Hello there. Happy New Year to both you and your pup. And welcome to another whole year of Spotlight on Assistance Dogs. I'm Devon from Canada. Last July, at its annual convention, Guide Dog Users Incorporated, otherwise known as GDUI, along with the International Relations Committee of the American Council of the Blind, sponsored a panel discussion about global affairs. Panelists included Diane Bergeron, who is the president of CNIB Guide Dogs in Canada, David Lachlan, who is the director of programs uh, for Leader Dogs, and longtime guide dog mobility instructor Lucas Frank, who is also a representative for the International Guide Dog Federation. The first question that was put to the panelists was, how did you become involved in working with other training centers around the world? Here's Diane. We started with the um, global connecting with other members um, in the last, well, we've been doing it for a while and just connecting and gaining experience and knowledge um, from other um, programs around the world. But in the last year, because of COVID and the border closures, we've really partnered with other organizations to help with resolving some of the issues of getting animals and people across borders and from other countries. I've been involved with the International Guide Dog Federation for a good number of years in, in a lot of different capacities. I, I, am, uh, I was an assessor, which, uh, as, as you may know, to become a member of the International Guide Dog Federation as, as a full member, you have to go through uh, an assessment process. And that means somebody comes out and, and takes a look to see that you meet the standards of the International Guide Dog Federation. Uh, and so I was one of those folks. I was an assessor. And now I'm active uh, in the development committee of the International Guide Dog Federation, which means uh, we, we try to help schools get started in places where uh, there's a desire for, to, to work with guide dogs, but there are no working programs. Right now I'm responsible, um, such as it is, or I represent the IGDF uh, in Latin America. Uh, and uh, that's a, a growth area in the guide dog field. Schools are starting at, uh, and uh, there's several in Brazil, Uruguay, uh, Argentina, Mexico. Uh, so there's, there's a lot going on uh, in Latin America right now in terms of the expansion of the guide dog field. Uh, my background is I've been in the guide dog industry for 21 years. I started at Guide Dogs in the UK. 
um, which was an organization that was founded in 1931 um, as a guide dog mobility instructor. I wasn't there in 1931, but I was a guide dog mobility instructor. Um, and then I um, transitioned in 2013-ish to Irish Guide Dogs, which is a separate uh, organization that was founded in 1976. And in 2014, I um, uh, came to Leader Dogs for the Blind in uh, Michigan here. Um, so uh, uh, that's kind of a little bit of my history. So um, kind of worked in organizations across Europe and, and the US uh, and also partnered with um, uh, various organizations in terms of training apprentices and uh, all that good stuff. So that's kind of a a short snapshot of my background. Another question that was posed to the panel was, which cultures were averse to accepting guide dogs and which ones were more willing to accept them into their societies? This is David. I'll, I'll take a, I'll kind of take a stab at that first. It's so difficult. Okay. I don't know as I could say you know, this specific culture. I do not have enough experience of living in so many places around the world. Well, my observation has been what is the the general attitude towards dogs in, in, in yeah, what's the, what's the attitude towards dogs in general? And that seems to, and again, this is my observation, then translate to guide dog, guide dog handles as well. And I think it's because depending on what the culture around dogs and how, um, so for example, um, cultures who perhaps where dogs are living in the home, they're very much a part of the family network. They're very much a family pet. I, my observation is typically when it comes to guide dog handlers, they're more sort of accepting and those that perhaps the dog is more of a sort of outdoor working type, isn't so much of a family pet. Um, perhaps doesn't have um, as much of acceptance when it comes to guide dogs. It's, it's very much a generalization, um, but that would be my observation. This is Diane. I can, as a handler, I can, I can just, I, I travel a lot um, internationally with my dog. Um, and in, you know, again, I don't think it, I don't think I can comment specifically on culture, but what I can say is that there are certain um, countries that are easier to get into with your dog than others, um, you know, and it, it doesn't necessarily mean the culture. So, for example, the United Kingdom, to get in there, you really have to jump through some pretty um, massive hoops to get in. It's getting better. You no longer have to do a, a rabies tighter, but it is it's because it's an island. So, you know, there's requirements. Once you're in, um, then it's very accepting. Whereas I went to Greece a couple of years ago. I had all my paperwork ready, had a Euro passport for the dog, had all the tapeworm treatments, got to the, the, the customs. They saw the dog and, and said, go, and just didn't have any interest in looking at the paperwork that I sent. They were just quite happy to let me in the country. I didn't even register. They didn't even stamp my passport. So it was like, you have a dog. We're happy to have you. And, um, and funny enough, in the hotel that we, I was staying at, I was the only person at the meeting with a guide dog. And uh, one, all the staff members kept coming over to see the dog and one of them was FaceTiming his family and they asked if, if, if he could FaceTime the, the dog with his family. Apparently, they didn't want me in the FaceTime. They didn't care if I was there, but they really wanted the dog to FaceTime yeah. with their kids. Um, 
And I thought like, surely to God, you guys have dogs here, right? Like, so, <laughs> um, but really welcoming, you know, great. And, and I was concerned about it because I wasn't sure what the, you know, what all of the um, intricacies of the, you know, the area was, and it was completely, it was amazing. Um, the one thing that, that I will say is that it, it also depends, it seems like, in the type of place that you're going. So, for example, in Canada, you know, you think all, all the laws are in place. We, we have everything out there. There's information everywhere. Um, but if you're in a bigger city where there's a lot of people that are, uh, you know, that have guide dogs or more, you know, a more um, awareness and people see it more on a regular basis, things seem to be fine. But when you go off into, I don't know, like Fort McMurray, which is in the middle of nowhere, um, Alberta, um, and they don't have any maybe guide dogs or they might have one or two, it becomes an anomaly. So they tend to be a little less aware of the, you know, of the laws and, and not sure what to do. So I think it's not just a, a culture in regards to maybe ethnic or country, but I think it's, it's more of a, a piece around um, also around how many, how much exposure you would have to that, uh, that in your area. Yeah, I, I think this is Lucas. I, I completely agree with Diane. There's a lot, lot to that, but there, and then there's also a lot culturally. It's interesting. I just interviewed a, an applicant, a wonderful man who travels internationally a lot, but he does a lot of humanitarian type work. And one of the things that he requested was that he not get a black dog. Uh, just because in the, many of the cultures he goes to uh, in Africa and sometimes Asia, uh, black dogs are seen as bad luck. Um, so, you know, that's something obviously that we can accommodate uh, and that's a serious concern. Um, one of the fascinating things about being in the, involved with the International Guide Dog Federation is exactly these types of cultural issues. Uh, I've had the good fortune to visit several Asian countries uh, notably uh, Korea and Japan. And um, the Korean guide dog school, be, be culturally, uh, that there's a lot of problem with problems with dogs in public, and they've had to do a tremendous amount of advocacy and been very, very successful at it. Japan also, we had an International Guide Dog Federation meeting in Japan. Uh, and uh, in, in Japan, the, the houses are, are very, very, and apartments are very, very small by Western standards. Um, and re dogs relieving on the street is, is really considered uh, an ugly thing to see. So the dogs are conditioned to empty indoors. They wear relieving belts uh, and, and empty that way. They do it on command very well, which is really handy on really long flights because you can take your dog into the into the bathroom on a plane and get the dog to relieve there. It's quite something to see. I actually watched, and this was not a guide dog user, but I was in a park in Tokyo and a woman with a, a tiny little dog, a chihuahua or something like that, uh, peed and it didn't go on the grass. It went, happened to go on the sidewalk and the woman pulled out some paper towels and soaked it up. So <clears throat> this, you know, the, the level of reaction to dogs there is, is and, and the necessity of those dogs to be clean is quite something. In addition, dogs in Japan wear clothes um, because, you know, the, the shedding is, is a huge issue there uh, from a cleanliness perspective. So the dogs have a, have a sort of suit or pajamas that they put on. They're completely covered. Their feet are exposed uh, and their tail pops out the end. 
there was one dog I saw which had a really cool set of overalls on in, with jean overalls. It looked very, very comfortable. Uh, and the dogs wear, wear those clothes whenever they're out in public. Uh, their feet are exposed so they can sweat comfortably. Their head is exposed so they can pant, so they can, they can breathe. They are comfortable, but uh, the hair is all contained within this um, washable sort of pajama that, that the dog wears. So yeah, there are huge cultural issues. Uh, and of course, the, the other piece of the cultural issue that comes up often is um, Islamic, in Islamic countries and with Islamic people. Uh, and this seems to be to some extent related to the religion itself, but to a greater extent uh, re related to the individual culture that underlies the Islamic religion um, and people. Some, some cultures are quite accepting of dogs, others not so much. And of course, we know that quite a bit in the United States from access to shops or, or public transportation, uh, publicly available private transportation where there's, there's reaction to to dogs, and that's often cultural, um, sometimes based in an understanding of the Islamic uh, taboos against dogs, which actually are quite forgiving. And again, it's mostly culture um, rather than religion, in my opinion. From there, the conversation turned to a comparison of training methods. In terms of training methods, um, gosh, I mean, I think I think the the whole industry has really um, started to change from the the traditional kind of the way I was originally trained, the trial and error, more to the positive reinforcement, um, introducing more sort of food reinforcement, um, use of toys, those types of things. So, I think from that perspective, I think that translates internationally from everything I've seen. It really more so comes down to the environment um, and how those dogs are to be trained with the guide work concepts and how that translates to the environments they're going to be in, um, which is uh, I think sometimes we overcomplicate it and the dogs uncomplicate it um, as, as they read the environment. So, um, yeah, I really do think it, it, it's more so about specific environment um, I know, I remember Lucas, I think it was back in 2015, you poked fun at me about do we train the dogs on the other side because of, we've trained in the UK because cars try, drive on the other side, of which I pointed out at the time. No, we still train dogs on the left. Um, makes no difference which side the traffic <laughs> is coming from. Because that was going to be my next question. So yes, please, please continue. <laughs> uh, that was going to be next. No, makes no difference. That really is about orientation and reading which way traffic is coming from, whether it's far or, or near from you. So um, I think when it comes to really vehicles on one side of the road or the other, the only real difference I see is really about kind of sidewalkless travel or, or country travel, depending on what each guide dog school calls it. Um, in the US, typically, we're, we're walking on the left-hand side of the road if there isn't a sidewalk, which, of course, here um, will mean that uh, the vehicle is coming more towards or on the person's side rather than the dog. Somewhere like the UK, where, where traffic drives on the left-hand side. Am I right? Yep. On the left-hand side of the road, um, we would actually travel down the right-hand side, the right verge. So the person is closer to the verge and the dog is closer to the road. Um, and there's pros and cons to both, of course. 
um, uh, being able to put your foot out and check the, the verges there versus the concrete uh, can be definitely a benefit um, in that scenario. But um, gosh, uh, I, I will stop there and let somebody else jump in, I think. It's, it's Diane. I have an Diane? interesting one. Yes. So, so uh, we train dogs only in Canada because we're so small. But, but here's a fun thing that happened in, in our partnership um, with, with leader dogs. And um, David, I don't even know if you heard this particular story. So, um, you know, we use very, uh, we use the same type of training techniques and so on and so forth. Dogs on the left, uh, traffic's the same. We, we're in, even in the same time zone. So it didn't seem like like this should have been an absolutely easy transition uh, when we got when we got these dogs, and so they came in. Uh, we got them into our kennel uh, facility, or what we call our canine campus. And um, uh, six o'clock in the morning comes along, and I'm getting a frantic call from someone in our in our kennel, one of our our kennel attendants, that well, the kennel supervisor with the kennel attendants, um, calling to ask me. Uh, how to, because I used to have leader dogs uh, before I, I started with CNIB and they called and said, what do you say to your dog to make it go busy? Because they were telling the dogs go busy and the dogs were staring at them like they had three heads and they were all in a state of panic because they couldn't figure out how to make these dogs. And it suddenly occurred to me that although we use very similar training techniques and so on, we use different words. So I had, as a, as a past leader dog grad, I, I had a, a glossary of terminology in my head. Um, and I had to do up a, a, uh, a leader dog to CNIB guide dog um, dictionary and um, send it out to the team so that they would be able to understand some of the terminology that these dogs as puppies grew up with. Um, but didn't didn't have in this new environment, and it, I mean, it didn't take long for us to figure it all out and get the dogs uh, on on that, the same sort of process. But it was an interesting thing for us because that was a consideration that we hadn't even thought of as we were, you know, trying to get dogs in. Um, and same as when um, one of the things that we that we did in to, to, to in return in the response to and in thank. It, thankfulness uh, to leader dogs and also to GDF for helping us out. We, um, we trained one of leader dogs clients in Canada. So the dog was trained at leader dogs, uh, everything, the equipment, everything else. We just provided our guide dog mobility instructors um, who went out and worked with uh, leader dog clients. So it's a leader dog grad and everything. We just had the GDMI. And I thought it was really fun because um, in both instances, we did one with GDF, one with leader dogs. And in both instances, the GDMIs that worked uh, with the client came back and said, it's fascinating because they learned new terminology that they didn't have. You know, we, you kind of get into a rut. So I think that working in an international space um, really helps, you know, and again, we, we work with Vision Australia with seeing eye over there. And our puppy raising supervisor has just come back this weekend, and she's already told us that she's going to be holding a, a workshop for all of uh, for all of us to talk to about some of the things that she learned over there. So the sharing of information is great, um, but even when you're using the same language, there's still some translation that that needs to be had. But uh, it's all worked out, David. Don't worry, um, your client is doing well, and the dogs are doing fine. I right, thank you. Yes. Uh, 
a great collaboration, Diane. Thank you. And I and I had heard the the busy versus part time story. So, um, yeah, it's the devil's in the details, as they say. Yes. When you get dogs from Australia, are they upside down? Diane. We all wow. so, really? sorry. I didn't. I didn't hear you. I didn't hear what you said, Lucas. When you get dogs from Australia, are they upside down? <laughs> no, but they spin in the opposite direction when they Is need that to pee. Right? <laughs> yeah, they, they spin the other way when they're gonna. Yeah, <laughs> that's good to hear. Uh, now I'll know when I see an Australian dog. Um, yeah, the, the, it's it's interesting. The command in Japan, at least in some schools in Japan, there are a couple things that are different. One is that at least one school there trains all of their dogs on both sides, so it can guide on the left or guide on the right. And what they they do, I think, is if they cross a street and turn, let's say, right, and the traffic is on the right, they put the dog on the left side and vice versa. So. Uh, that's just one interesting variant. And we already talked a little bit about how they teach their dogs to relieve on command inside on, in, in uh, relieving uh, bags. The other thing I'll mention is that, and I don't know if this is true in China as well, but I, there, there are a couple things that I know about this. One is that in, Jap in Japan, the commands are that are at least in some schools that are given to the dogs are in English because Japanese is a much more tonal language. So that, for example, the command to relieve is one, two. And that's the dogs learn that that that's the trigger word for, for that behavior. Another command that I've seen illustrated in Tokyo, <clears throat> there are a lot there. The traffic is completely crazy and to cross many busy, busy roads, they have pedestrian overpasses. And so command, the do dogs learn the command bridge as in, and so that when they, when they're approaching uh, one of those overpasses, they could go along the sidewalk or they could target the overpass and dogs are trained to respond to the command bridge, which is interesting. Uh, I've also seen some fascinating video of uh, done by a fellow named William Chen, who worked for Leader Dog for a while and then started a guide dog program, the first guide dog program in Taiwan. Uh, and uh, he, he sent video of one of the, you know, it, their cars are, there are a lot of cars in Taiwan, but there are also an awful lot of scooters. And most people in a city environment would drive a scooter rather than a, a rather than a, a car. And so the dogs, for example, if someone drives up to you and gives you, offers you a ride or you're going somewhere with someone on their scooter, then you as the, the blind passenger would hop on the back, but the dog would sit on the flat floor of the scooter in between the driver's legs. So that's a whole different skill, uh, but that's what they do. Their dogs are very, very used to that. So there's a lot of differences culturally.
that's just about all we have time for uh, this time around. I do want to thank Guide Dog Users Incorporated and the International Affairs Committee of the American Council of the Blind for allowing me to air this uh, panel discussion that took place. There is uh, a lot more. If you want to listen to it, all you have to do is go to Guide Dog Users Inc. .org and look for the uh, convention recordings and you'll find this one from the summer of 2021 and uh, there are lots of uh, anecdotes and, and that sort of thing that you'll enjoy. Uh, and that's going to do it for this month. Uh, do uh, plan on joining us on the uh, third Friday of February. Uh, in the meantime, thank you so much for listening, and have a good month. We'll finish now with the mon monkeys, and gonna buy me a dog. Well, if your song's gonna be in a Johnny Jans movie, it's gonna make you rich. Hey, man, will you remember when you're rich and famous? Oh, you know I will, Danny. Davey. <laughs> Mike's gonna be rich. Friends, I'm Joe Bullard and I want to tell you about my kind of music. 
It's now being transmitted every Sunday at 1600 hours UTC on the Global Voice. Two hours of easy on the ear music, standards, ballads, love songs, good country, big band and memory joggers. Make note of the time, 1600 hours UTC. Sunday, my kind of music with me, Joe Bollard. Check the website for repeats.